Good evening, everyone, on this Saturday night, April 11th, 2020. I am your host, Reverend Dr. Mitzi Smith. I am the J. Davison Phillips Professor of New Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Our topic tonight is a womanist dialogue about the widow of Zarephath, intersectionality, pandemic, and resurrection. My dialogue partners tonight are Reverend Dr. Love Seacrest, Academic Dean and Associate Professor of New Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary. Reverend Eva Melton, who is the founding pastor and current pastor of Firm Foundation Church, the Firm Foundation Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Lisa, Reverend Dr. Lisa Weaver is the Assistant Professor of Worship and Liturgy at Columbia Theological Seminary. Each of us will present our critical readings of the biblical story of the widow of Zarephath. We will each have 10 to 12 minutes. Afterwards, we will engage in dialogue, including taking some questions from you all tonight. First, however, we will read the biblical story uh, about the widow of Zarephath in the New Revised Standard Version for those not familiar with the story. It is found in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. It reads, The word of the Lord came to him, and him is the prophet Elijah, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So Elijah set out, and he went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. And as she was going to bring the water, he called to her again and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home, prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. But Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go. And do as I have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For as the Lord God of Israel, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of meal will, will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. 
she went and did as Elijah said, so that she, as well as he and her household, ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. We will begin the dialogue with Reverend Dr. Love Seacrest. Womanism grows out of the unique social location of Black women as those who occupy two overlapping and marginalized identities. That of women stereotyped as weak and disposable, and that of Black stereotyped as lazy consumers of resources who don't deserve help. One of the most enduring stereotypes of Black women in this country is the so-called welfare queen, one uh, started by Ronald Reagan in the 80s. Supposedly, Black welfare queens scam the welfare system and get rich off public monies. This is a stereotype behind current rhetoric against government-funded education and healthcare that undermines the public good. The logic of white supremacy is that all public goods belong exclusively to white people. Never mind that Blacks have been systematically excluded from public goods, like the basic human dignity of any wages in the past and fair wages in the present. In essence, Black people built the public good in this country. In contrast to the logic of white supremacy, Black women's wisdom has sustained us and our people as we, ha as we have navigated an oppressive, racist, sexist society that doesn't see us as people who are worthy of public investment. Womanist wisdom is what I learned at my grandmother's knee. It's an ever-flowing generosity that never quit giving. The women of my family will give you the shirt off their backs if you say you like it. Travelers who stopped by my girlhood home would always get a bite to eat and be sent home with a bag of food for good measure. Black food, soul food, mostly shaped by the way that Black folk had to gather scraps together to make a meal out of the worst cuts of meat and somehow make it into something to sustain our bodies and souls. And, and these are some of the values at the center of our story. In some ways, this is the spirit of the widow of Zarephath. On the other hand, we know that women too frequently put their own well-being on the back burner, tending to their own life and health only after everyone else's needs have been served. Unfortunately, the women in my family modeled this behavior too, behavior that puts women's needs last. And this sexist logic can also be found in the Zarephath story. And turning now to the text, um, in the preceding chapter, we learned that Ahab was one of the most disobedient kings in Israel's history. And one of his main problems was the pursuit of alliances through intermarriage with foreign women, or at least um, that is presented as a problem. Uh, Abraham, Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Sidon, a foreign queen who was stereotyped as greedy and promiscuous. The clear implication a racist and sexist one, I might add, is that an outsider woman is sinful and brings social and religious corruption. 
But thank God that that stereotype of the evil foreign woman is undermined by the widow of Zarephath, the heroine in this story. In the middle of a drought, the Lord tells Elijah to go to Zarephath near Sidon because God had already raised up a widow there to take care of him. While widows ordinarily represent great poverty and need in the Bible, our passage says that Elijah was sent to her for his salvation. He was instructed to go to the foreigner for help. Elijah was sent to someone like the women in my family who are always regarded as outsiders. The first miracle in this story is when the widow shared her precious water with a thirsty stranger in the middle of a drought. This action is so similar to the profound generosity of black women I know. When your first impulse is towards the common good, everybody wins. And it is the wisdom of sharing that will get us through this pandemic. The logic of sharing would urge us to build a new healthcare system that prioritizes public health over corporate profit. In a pandemic, when you leave sick people alone on the street, you find that everyone is at risk. And this is what I would love to tell all those who are hoarding healthcare. If everyone pays a fair share, we can afford public healthcare that serves us all. This is the lesson, one lesson of the pandemic. And I hope we learn it as a nation. But after drinking her water, Elijah then says this, don't be afraid, make some for me first, talking about making bread, and then make some for yourself. And doggone it if I don't hear him demanding that he put his needs over her own. But I am instructed when this generous widow declines to give the stranger the last scraps of her food, at least initially. And by refusing, she is counting herself and her child every bit as worthy of life as the wandering prophet. In my judgment, this is the second miracle in this text. What I hear her saying is that no one wins when you take my scarce resources. Third, she goes on in generosity by risking her resources by gambling on a vision of abundance on the word from the Lord that contributed in little she had will produce enough for everyone. But my friends note that this happened only after she had first recognized the equal worth of her own life. What do they say during an in-flight emergency? Before you assist others, always put your oxygen mask on first. This is the second lesson of the pandemic. We are all worth saving. I hope we learn it too. The logic of whiteness says, all these resources are ours, not yours. And, um, and this, this, this sentiment which came from the White House is a recipe for disaster. It's the logic that's being deployed right now when the White House is sending desperately needed medical resources to private companies instead of hospitals so that the private companies can jack up the prices and then sell those resources back to hospitals. 
literally doing in the open what they've always accused us of doing. They are profiting off of public monies. Ronald Reagan must be rolling over in his grave. But black women's logic is about tending to the, pub, to the common good. It means each of us contributing from what we have so that all may thrive. Where there is a spirit of sharing, the text tells us, there is also the life-giving spirit of abundance from the living God who speaks a word and life comes into being. But the Zarephath logic is especially important in this season as well. This logic recognizes the worth of all people and says, you give me a little first and then each of us does the same. This is a recipe that raises all tides and lifts all boats. This is holy logic that multiplies fishes and loaves. This is resurrection logic that can come out of this pandemic. I hope we learn this one too. Amen. Uh, Dr. Uh, Pastor Eva. So the lens I read this through makes me question the narrator and the voice of God and the man of God in this text. Um, the woman is introduced in this particular scene as a medium to sustain or preserve the man of God. And the narrator supposes that the voice of God has commanded a widow to feed him. But earlier, the same language was used in reference to the raven. He was told to go to the brook so that the raven could feed him. The ravens were commanded to feed him. And now he's told to go where this widow is because she has been commanded to feed him. Mm. She is introduced as a medium to sustain the man of God. And so based on how the narrative flows, I wonder what's on the widow's mind. Um, we are in the middle of a drought and it's already problematic that the voice of God sends a man of God to a widow. But he shows up making requests of her. No one inquires of her condition before they make the request. Mm. Um, and it sounds familiar to black women right now in the pandemic. Um, but I can tell you what's on her mind based on the passage. Death is on her mind because she's prepared to eat her last meal. Mm -hmm. Giving up is on her mind. She has no present nor future provision. And she doesn't even have a clue when the drought will end. This widow is on the margins of society, and just like Black women today, she could be easily wiped out because she is at a greater risk for exposure. And so today in COVID-19, um, when it first started ravishing America, the focus was on the certain statuses of society, the wealthy, the entertainers. And while men and women of color were being wiped out by the masses, no one spoke of it in the media. It took weeks for the media to focus on the impacts to our community. And it's been said, when white folks catch a cold, black folks get pneumonia. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose based on stats from Dorian Mason this week that when the country sneezes, the black woman catches the flu. Mm -hmm. And so just as I consider the, the widow's thoughts in the midst of this drought, I wonder what's on the mind of black women right now in America during our present pandemic. Are we considering her condition? Are we looking at COVID-19 through her lens? Or are we simply viewing Black women as vessels to sustain the religious leaders and institutions, the service industry, and the men around us? I do wonder. 
Many of us are essential workers in America, which puts us at a higher risk of contracted, contracting COVID-19. Like this widow, we are out gathering sick to feed our children. Healthcare is on our mind. If our children or ourselves contract this virus, do we have the coverage to see us through? We are on the 10th anniversary of the Affordable Health Care Act, and only 14%, 14% of black women still remain uninsured. Mm-hmm. Quality of care is on our minds. We know that black women's pain uh, is uh, often ignored by medical professionals, similar to the, how the condition of this woman is initially ignored by the narrator. Historically and now, we are more likely to be caregivers for our children. So now that the children are not at school, our level of responsibility has doubled and possibly tripled. Are we considering the mental health impact of this additional load? If this story could be retold, I would like to hear more of the widow's voice. I would love to hear her express her own pain and anxiety in the middle of this drought. She obviously is essential, not just to Elijah. She is essential to herself and to her own son. The man of God shows up making requests, bring me water, bring me food, never questioning her situation and how the drought is impacting her. And I don't think she received this text message from God commanding her to feed Elijah because she starts sharing what her plans are when he starts asking for food. And when she shares her situation, when she starts talking about her condition and her circumstance, her own voice gets shut down in the text. We no longer hear from the widow once she says her own condition until the scene changes. Did this woman really feed Elijah first? Was her blessing really tied to Elijah eating before her and her son? We never get a yes or a no from her own voice in the story. Once she shares her condition, her voice is removed and the narrator picks up and tells the rest of the story for her. The lesson I gathered most from reading this is to consider the storyline of those on the margin amidst COVID-19. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Pastor Eva. Uh, Dr. Weaver. Ma'am, so in looking at this text, uh, one of the themes that, that comes out for me is to look at the ecclesial power differential. You've got a prophet, a religious man, and, um, and a woman who is a widow, right? So you've got, so the first thing that occurs to me is how Black women, how for Black women, our life and our church life are so intertwined. Mm-hmm. And the amount of authority and influence that male religious leaders exert over women in the name of the Lord said, or this is what God mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as Pastor Eva's point said, the, the, the text doesn't suggest, um, it's not explicit, doesn't deny or say that she heard from God as well. Um, and, and so the question of ecclesial power and authority and dynamics and related to that, the dynamics in relationships when there's a power differential and when there is work or service to be done mm. in the physical context. Um, one, uh, another thing that occurs to me that, that this text raises for me 
is the notion that the marginalized who are last in society are then asked to put themselves last. Mm -hmm. She's a widow. And the text tells us later on, it's not just her and her son. That's what she says to the prophet, but it's through the narrative that we learn. She's got a whole household, right? But she only articulates to the prophet, you know, I'm trying to feed me and my son, but she's got an entire household. And she, and he asks her, to put herself last. And again, as I think Pastor Eva said, not inquiring about anybody else that may be in her household. Mm -hmm. so, so that emerges for me in the text as well. Another thing that comes out of the text for me is that, and I think Pastor Eva said this, he does not ask or request, he commands. It's an instruction. It, it, it's, it's, it's in the declarative, you know, go get me some water. Mm -hmm. And she presumably in the text does this, without retort or response. And as she is going to that, he asks for more. So there's this whole notion of asking for even more. It, 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 seems, it seems like for Black women, there is always an additional request. There's always something more that's being asked of them. And it is when he asks for the second thing that she turns around and says, wait a minute. Um, and she responds, um, that they're going to die, that she has these resources for her and her son. And he says, don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first. And even in his instruction to go first, you know, go do what you said first. But even as we parse that, he says, make me some first and bring it. So it, there's not even consideration of, I know I'm asking for your last. I know that, that you are pulled away from your household because you have to return. Mm -hmm. But he says, go make it, bring it to me, and then you can go back and make what's yours. There's always this, there seems to be often this request of the marginalized to make themselves last. We want to make you last, but then we want to put you in a position to have to make yourself last as well. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, the, it's the largest systemic it's the church systemic because black women are often asked to perform tasks unresourced. Historically, I'm grateful for every black woman who stands in, in church context where they are resourced and supported, but historically and still, there are many who are being asked like this widow to give resources out of their sticks and handfuls. I mean, I think that's a huge theme that she has sticks mm -hmm. and handfuls that there's a way in which we are often asked to make do and make miracles out of sticks and handfuls. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, sticks and handfuls. And, and mm -hmm. I wonder- Yeah, I was thinking about that too. I get, I, you know, and I wonder, as I was reading this, what would it look like if verse 14 was moved up to verse before verse 11 and here, and here's my thought. He asked for water. Mm -hmm. She's going for water. And he says, Oh, by the way, and make bread mm -hmm. and make mine first and then go back. Mm -hmm. And it is after she acquiesces, responds, is obedient to these requests. Then he says, and God's going to bless you and it's never going to run out. As if it's a test. Mm -hmm. Like there's always this test of obedience for black women. What would it be like if the promise came before the request? What would it be like mm -hmm. if she had provision and she could give out of her abundance and then say the Lord's going to bless you? Why do I have to be tested mm -hmm. to prove 
how much I fill in the blank, and then, oh, God's going to bless you. So, so there's this tension of even the order in which Black women are approached. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so these, you know, systems and requests come up. So, so those are some of the things that come up for me um, in this text. And the intersection of Black women historically and even probably sometimes today still being caught in, well, I have to do this for the church, but you got to take care of home too, right? And so, so, so Black women being caught in these situations by the intersectional, intersectional places in which they sit, who mm-hmm. comes first? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that when the church asks you, questions you, tests you to put your family second, is the church not doing what society is already doing? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. so, so those are, those are, those are a few of the um, places of friction for me. Thank you, Dr. Reeve. Uh, I'd like to go back to the um, literary context, the, the immediate literary context. Um, and, and it's because it's so similar to the context in which we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, so we're told we have this king, the head of the state is an evil man. <laughs> this is King Ahab, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And we're told that he is more evil than all the presidents, I'm sorry, all the kings before him. The Ahab is evil all by himself. Yet the narrator or the translator of the Hebrew to the Greek or or some commentators may have us to believe that he was evil because of his wife Jezebel and her worship of Baal. But Jezebel does what a lot of religious folks do when the, when the integrity and sanctity of their prophets are attacked. So as head of state, heads of state like King Ehab will protect themselves, their interests, their stock portfolio. And surround themselves with people who constantly praise them, who grovel before them, and tell them him only what he wants to hear. Does that sound familiar? Truth, when you have a King Ahab, truth becomes fiction, and fiction becomes fact. I would not doubt, I would not doubt it if a drought, a pandemic was expected, but Ahab refused to act upon it, refused to cause a panic in the stock market. Ahab is uh, about Israelite exceptionalism. He doesn't care about the impact of drought and famine on his people, his neighbors, other kingdoms, and other countries. 
not unlike our present situation. King Ahab was like his daddy, Jeroboam, before he married Jezebel. Why should she transfer her allegiance to his God, considering the man she maybe knew who he was before he, she married him, and maybe not. You know, people can hide a lot of stuff before you marry him. This is the state of things when Elijah abruptly appears on the scene. How will, as my colleagues have asked, how will the most vulnerable survive in this environment? You know, people are talking about how it's impacting, this pandemic is impacting black people and, and asking what should we do they didn't want to ask that question beforehand as dr weaver pointed out a group of evangelical conservative prophets probably prayed for an anointed ahab told him not to alarm the people told him to keep the threat of the drought to himself told him that god had him covered we create religion, not God. God transcends religion. So when Elijah enters the drama and he announces to Ahab, quote, as the Lord my God lives before whom I stand, unquote, neither rain nor dew shall appear on the earth for years except by my word, these words you will notice are not the usual words we get before a prophetic oracle so i submit that this is not a prophetic oracle that all the signs were already there but elijah chooses to repeat the truth that ahab has called fiction this new this new prophet on the scene refuses to shut up, but when he says what he has to say, when he tells the truth, the truth that has been before them all this time, he cuts and runs. But look, this, this, these words you will notice are also very similar to the words on the widow's lips. She says, when Elijah comes to her, he, she says, as the Lord your God lives. Elijah has said to Ahab, as the Lord my God lives before whom I stand. He is not prophesying yet. He's just telling the truth that was so obvious that but no one else had the courage at that point to say because of Ahab. So, as I said, his, his pronouncement is not the usual prophetic uh, oracle. It is not a prophetic oracle. It is a truth. It is a telling of the truth in public before Ahab that they refuse to acknowledge. But when he tells the truth is when he gets a prophetic oracle. Uh, he says the Lord came to him and told him to run. <laughs> to tell him to go to the wadi, to the stream that usually is filled with water after it rains, to go there and, and he would 
find water to drink, and the birds would feed him. But this new man of God, right? God has mercy on him. And as I said, it is when he, after he gives, uh, tells the truth that was, that was evident all around him, is when the Lord comes to him and Elijah says, the word of the Lord came to me and said, run and hide. And so God telling him to run and hide is God showing mercy to Elijah. But the question is, is God's mercy only reserved for prophets like Elijah? Is God's mercy only reserved for prophets like Elijah? Some droughts, and usually often a famine can follow a drought, droughts, famines, pandemics, pandemics are exasperated they are made worse have a wider and deadlier impact when coupled with abuse of power and failure of heads of state to act when they first are made aware of that trouble is in the air abuse of power evil power affects all of us but the most vulnerable, as my peers have said, are disproportionately dying in our context from COVID-19. Those already marginalized because of gender, because of ethnicity, because of race, because of religious affiliation, social status will be disproportionately affected and even blamed for the losses, even blamed for the impact on them. Uh, when uh, the doctor, even when Fauci and Trump came out talking about the impact of COVID-19 on the African-American uh, community, it came out as blamed. They are obese, they have high blood pressure, but no mention of the sy systemic racism and other um, uh, uh, and, and the, um, the medical system that uh, my peers have talked about before me, Pastor Eva and uh, uh, Doctors Weaver and um, Seacrest. And so I want to make a, I want to now move from that context to uh, looking at the widow herself who resides in a territory called, um, she's from Zarephath, and Zarephath is in Sodom, right? She's from Jezebel's homeland, right? And she is Phoenician, like Jezebel, and she probably worships the same God as Jezebel, uh, which is Baal, right? The male, uh, the male uh, Asherah, the, um, I'm sorry, the, the male, a god of storm, of rain, of the storms, and of rain, and of fertility of the land. Perhaps Elijah might refer to it. Now, I would imagine that he was a little shocked when God told him to go see this widow. I imagine that he would refer to this country as a shithole country, given that Jezebel is from there. So there is also the possibility that Elijah had to swallow a lot of pride to follow what he believed was the best saith the Lord. 
or he was in the habit, as my peers have said, of praying on the vulnerable. I hope that the God we serve is not a God who instructs us to pray upon the vulnerable. What about the rest of the suffering people in Sudan? Is the prophet, uh, is the prophet's God only concerned about the prophet and the woman who risked her life and the life of her son to feed the prophet? This widow is the first person Elijah encounters at the entrance of the city. So it is not surprising that it is from her that he demands or asks for a hospitality. If you remember the woman at the well in the Gospel of John, the first woman who came out, right? Jesus approaches her for hospitality. This woman, without talking back, despite the scarcity of water, proceeds, as my peers have said, to share her water with this stranger. Her God has not completely forsaken her, the God of rain, because she has access to water. Probably in her eyes, her God has not forsaken her yet. Her water has not dried up. Her religion, though, different from his, does not discourage hospitality toward this foreigner. Unfortunately, too often, we Christians, right, uh, act as if our religion does demand that we not give hospitality to the foreigner, to the stranger, to those at the border. Even when her resources are scarce, her religion compels her to respond to his command and offer him hospitality. In times of crisis, human beings of compassion will share with others, regardless of religion, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender and race. And even when he asks for bread, my colleagues have said, she, she does not say no. Instead, she says the same words he says, but, he, but she says, referring to his God, as the Lord your God lives. In other words, your God, if he is a living God, ought to surely know that I have no bread baked and only enough meal and oil to feed myself and my child. If your God is, a, is an all-seeing, all-knowing God, is truly a God, he should know my predicament. You know, so why have, has he sent you to me? Is this a God who only shows up when the for the widows who risk their lives and the lives of the children for the preacher? Is this a God who only shows up for the widows who risk their lives and the lives of their, of their children for the church? I do not believe God expects marginalized than those at the low, in lower economic statuses, older folks who we've been told should sacrifice their lives for the rest of us or poor single parents, and I want to, I want to say that, uh, that um, 
it's very possible that this widow was not poor before this drought. Um, womanist scholar and New Testament scholar Phoebe Dickerson reminds us in her new book that we should not stereotype the widows. Uh, so she does not have to be a helpless uh, woman, even though she's single. She does not have to be helpless, even though she is a single parent. But I do not believe God calls these folks, people in her predicament, to sacrifice themselves for the rest of us. But God does call us to share resources with the most vulnerable, to make sure everyone has quality of life and dignity before, during, and after a drought or a pandemic. Now, I wanna to go to the, the prophet. Um, uh, the fact that he takes up temporary residence in her home, according to the text, he may be there almost three years. He takes up temporary residence in this single, uh, a woman's home while her son and her, and her, and her son lies dying. Now this is, this may be the place where Jesus might say, right? Had he met this woman at the well, the man whom you live with now is not your husband. Anyway, it is not because the meal and the oil are multiplied, and they all eat that she believes that Elijah is a man of God, right? It is not until her son dies, and he resurrects the son, that she says that he is a man of God. Perhaps she sees him as a predator. But for some reason, she is, according to the narrator, and we should critique the narrator as Pastor Eva has told us. She is not telling her own story. We can use our holy imagination, be between the lines. But what I want to draw from this point, from this part of the narrative, is that God has always been in the resurrection business. Before, Jesus showed up, and I know some of us don't like that. God, but we do know that God has always been, God is the Alpha and the Omega. God has always been in the resurrection business. Some say, in this case, religion trumps ethnicity. But a religion that requires the outsider, the marginalized, the ethnic other to take the greater risk, to risk life for its prophets, priests, preachers, presidents, is still racist and problematic. Feed me first and you will have food. So I'm backing up now. That will never run out. He says, heretofore, here this is an interesting statement, because heretofore his water has run out. Heretofore, here, the, 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 the ravens, right, they cut and ran on him. They got tired of bringing him food. But yet he says to her, 
Yours will not run out. This has not been his experience to the point before he gets to her. Whether the medicine turns out to be healing or not, it is not okay to play or to pray upon the fears of the vulnerable in a famine or pandemic. And that, mean, that makes me think of the malaria medicine they are pushing on folks in Detroit and other areas, playing on our fears, getting rich off our fears. Yes, her oil and her, and her meal, according to the story, did not run out, but guess who was there helping eat it up? Elijah. In Detroit, they are playing on the fears of poor black people. Detroit, an area where over 50% over of the population is below the poverty line. Never mind those who are at the poverty line. And most of them are African-American women. Playing on our fears. And most of them are mothers like this widow. We cannot uncritically assume the position of the man of God. We cannot uncritically, when we read this story, put ourselves in Elijah's position. Act as if we are Elijah. We must put ourselves, try to see ourselves in the place of the widows, the marginalized, the voiceless. We cannot uncritically assume the position of the man of God as he is called in the text and see the predicament he cannot and at the same time see the predicament that he has placed this woman in. It is not the storyteller's goal to give you the facts of her life, but to persuade you to side with the man of God no matter what. The God of Israel is not her God. What defense does she have in the face of a prophet who shows up and says that God, his God, has told her that he should be her first? So now I'd like to uh, uh, put a couple of questions. Did we, did we lose uh, Dr. Seeker? Okay, this is she's back. Uh, so uh, I'd, I'd like to, um, uh, two questions that I shared ahead of time with our panel, and then I'd like to open it up for your questions, please. And so uh, if you would start putting your questions, and we'll try to call on some folks in the, um, in the, in the uh, chat box, uh, please uh, do that. So uh, the, our first question is, a resurrection, in the strictest sense of the word, requires a physical death. I don't believe that God sends families or famines, droughts, or pandemics to teach us a lesson, to cause suffering and knowingly, inevitably, the oppressed, marginalized, and those forced beyond the margins, made invisible, or disproportionately impacted and certainly die. So the question is, what are some things or situations that we need to kill, to die, uh, that we need to die, that we need to kill, that we need to burn 
that God uh, and or we can resurrect in us or in our church, society or world, uh, so that we can, with God, resurrect in us, in our churches, our society or world, a more equi equitable, just, loving, peaceful existence. So the question is, what things or situations do we need to kill, die, or bury? That's the first question. Uh, who, uh, who would like to start on this, Dr. I'll start on that. Um, three, maybe four things, and they might be related. The first thing I think we need to kill is the language of lack. That is language that we've been inherited from the media. There's not enough. We need to do this. We need to do that. There's a language of lack because there is enough. There is enough. It's not balanced. It's not distributed equitably, but there is enough. There are enough resources. There are enough. There's enough food. There is enough. And so we need to bond that language. We need to really come against that language. The other thing we need to kill or destroy is we need to get rid of the idol of individualism mm. or the seduction of self-sufficiency. Mm. Because that's another bill of goods that we've been sold and that we buy into and, and, and that we are, we are called to be communal. Our strength comes out of our communal capacities. Um, that, that's where our strength comes from, out of our communal wealth, our communal health, our communal resources. So there's this idol of individualism. We need to get rid of that. We need to kill unimaginative spirits. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that this pandemic hopefully has taught everyone, and this is related to something else I think we need to kill. We need to kill the word can't. Mm -hmm. uh, because one of the things that the pandemic has taught us is the things that we thought we couldn't do, that couldn't be done, actually can be done. And so we need to kill that because the pandemic demonstrates we have greater capacity than we could have imagined. Mm -hmm. But our capacity shouldn't be born on the crucible of suffering. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we need to, to kill that. Those, those are a few things I think we need to kill. I'm going to pause there. Okay, thank you. We would like to go next. I want to read one I saw here in the meantime, Spirit of Silence. We need to kill a spirit of silence, somebody said, in the spirit of our religiosity. Who's next on my panel? I'd like to respond to that. Yes, I am. Professor Eva. So I just want, I think we should increase or, or resurrect the, the ability to tell our own stories and create mediums to tell our stories, not, you know, when we think about Black women, not just the position that we're in, but Black women all the way around the board. Mm -hmm. uh, and that requires us to create mediums such as this, create podcasts, create blogs, and to get our stories out because mass media is not going to tell our story until we have almost been wiped out. Awesome. So that's the other side of kill our silence. And what do we do once we kill the silence, right? So that's something creative we can do. And and uh, Pastor Eva is an example of that. She has her own podcast, started her own church. I would love to see other women start their own churches and women support women starting just churches, not the same old, same old thing that uh, oppressive men have been doing. Okay, uh, 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 Dr. Seacrest, would you like to respond? Yeah, I'll, um, I'll be brief so that we can hear from uh, our other dialogue partners who are now um, uh, active in the chat room. 
I um you I have said at the outset that I am very interested in leadership as a phenomenon, and um, I cannot um, I cannot stop thinking about the leadership crisis we have unfolding in front of our very eyes. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that if I read in the media another um, analysis of the 2016 election that talks about Trump being elected because of economic anxiety, I think I'll throw up. I mm -hmm. think we need to kill that idea. That's what I think needs to die. Mm -hmm. um, he won because of racism and she lost because of misogyny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Like that's, that's what happened. And, um, and it, you know, the, the history repeats itself or it doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Um, everyone said she was such a uniquely unlikable candidate. Yet we had another, another this, this new season where the most, in my opinion, most qualified candidate was a woman mm -hmm. who was very likable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> two two well-qualified women, at least two, who were very mm -hmm. likable. Yeah. And where do their candidacies end up? Mm -hmm. So I think that racism and misogyny is killing us and especially killing the leadership capacities of women and especially women of color. So, um, so I want to, and, and, you know, let's, let's face it, the black church is not a place where women's leadership capacities have been nurtured and thriving. That's what I want to see um, shape us in the future. Okay, wonderful, yes. So we, we see some good stuff here and uh, awesome stuff uh, happening here in the chat. So please uh, put your questions, uh, uh, raise your hand or say I have a question and I will, and then I'll call on you and you can unmute. Okay, this is Rodney F. Uh, Rodney, uh, so you wanna uh, unmute your mic now and ask your question. Yes, so um, CNN recently reported that widows in Nigeria are being ostracized and physically assaulted by their husband's family. So in what ways can womanist theology be a cultural interpreter and liberator for our communities? Okay, thank you, uh, uh, Rodney. Uh, so Rodney, you can um, mute your mic back now so we can uh, get the panel to, to respond. So Rodney's uh, saying that widows are being um, uh, killed, uh, murdered in Nigeria. Am I repeating you uh, correctly? And uh, so you're asking what can womanist uh, theology and biblical interpretation contribute to that situation? Uh, could I, I could, I'd like to just start by really lifting up something that uh, Dr. Reverend Dr. Smith, um, I think brilliantly articulated in her remarks. And that is the notion that we have to stop seeing ourselves in these texts in the position of the male prophet. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to be instead looking at, and I, and I believe that's what womanist uh, perspectives bring. It, it, it invites all of us to see through the eyes of the oppressed to the extent, or at least to, to make them the, uh, the, the focus of our attention. 
um, to look at to look at the marginalized, to ask, as as Reverend Melton um, said, to ask their condition first, as we are beginning to engage uh, a kind of problem. Um, it is the it is the concern. It is the concern for the intersectionality of a uh, of a of a people's condition that I think is what uh, womanist theology um, focuses on. And to stop reading these texts for um, through the eyes of the hero or through the narrators uh, making the assumptions that, that the narrators uh, assumptions and worldviews are those that we necessarily have to adopt as well. Um, I think all of these, this critical lens is we want to we want to be asking lots of questions, and we want to be interrogating um, the the uh, the places, the spaces of the marginalized. This is what I think is would be really helpful. I don't know a lot about what is going on in Nigeria, um, but I can say that I that that where if I were to enter into it, those would be the that would be the space that I would. I would want to say I want to I want to unpack what what is it that they say is the problem, <laughs> and I would want to ask in the voices of the persons themselves, as Reverend Melton really helped us to see. That's where I would start. Yeah, you know, and I think you know those they they their stories need to be told, and their stories need to be listened to. There need to be opportunities made for those little stories to be told, and until they can tell them, somebody needs to continue to to tell their story until they can tell their own stories. Or, or, or uh, and as, uh, and, and I'm from what Dr. Seacrest is saying as well. Um, I think also one of our overarching or meta perspectives from which we read or uh, the Bible um, is the, um, um, is, a, is, is I think a perspective of God is a God of freedom, right? That God has given all of us this freedom, um, and uh, and how do we uh, how 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 can we be religious communities and beyond that communities that are about making sure everyone has the freedom to be um, and and to to be loved and to live a, a quality of life. Um, and so forth. Uh, there, there was something else that came to me. I'm like, well, see you tomorrow. Maybe I'll come back later. Anybody else have a response to this question? <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about in terms of how womanist theology can be a, a, a cultural um, in, interpreter and, and a liberator for communities is, is to speak to the agency of women. And this is where the intersection of culture, and you know family systems and social structures come into place in varying degrees some cultures more than others some contexts more than others women have varying degrees of agency and so part of you know being ostracized by a family can imbue and flame uh, fill in the verb of your choice you know feelings like i don't have a choice i have to take this and so there is, there's a community of women in terms of womanist theology, there's a community of women that says, you have some agency, you've got some support. So the notion of having a community around you that is interested in your flourishing, not just your survival, but your, your flourishing, your thriving, 
and can inform that from a womanist lens and perspective. Because women in these situations, they first need help. They need help in identifying, accessing their own agency to say yes, to say no. And there are so many social, familial, cultural things that tell us we have to say yes. We cannot say no. And womanist theology, it bucks against that. We do have voice, we do have agency, we do have choices, and choices that are not individualistic, but choices that are not only for my own well-being, but for the community's well-being. Yes. Oh, so, so let me say this, too, in terms of reminisce biblical interpretation, uh, at least from my perspective, right, is that uh, we, we are never going to address the concerns of our communities as long as we put uh, uh, make the Bible prior, right? Now, the Bible is not synonymous with God. You have to get that. The Bible is not synonymous with God. But if we privilege, for example, the predicament of the widows in your community, right, and read the Bible in dialogue with, like we tried to do, like we did here today, is read the Bible in dialogue with those predicaments, right? Because God cares and God is present now. God is not a God just of history. And what this, this Eurocentric notion of exegesis has us always looking behind the text, right? And always privileging the Eurocentric voice. And so we need to get away from both of, both of those ideas of putting uh, the biblical text, this historical document, yes, it can be sacred, but that does not mean it takes the place of God or it takes the place of God's concern for the people in our communities and the situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in that are oppressive. A question, another question from the audience here. Questions? I saw, I saw one from Sherilyn Tribble. Uh, okay. That was pretty interesting. If, could she unmute her mic? Hi there, yes. Yes, please ask your question, Cheryl. Okay, so um, my question um, has to do with um, the possibility that we as Black women are too concerned about being liked to be able to be effective leaders. Um, and so a lot of times when we're challenged, we feel like we have to explain a lot of things. I mean, even in this text, the, the widow is doing all the talking. Um, Elijah says a few things. He, is, he makes his demands, as was mentioned earlier, and the widow feels like she has to do all of this explaining. Many times when we're in a leadership position, we feel like we have to explain everything about why we're making certain decisions instead of just telling people that, um, we're going to go in this direction or that direction. Okay, so so what so what was the question? I'm sorry, did I miss it? So, yes. So so the question is: Are we too concerned about being um, liked to be um, effective as as women in the church and in other settings? And um, it was said earlier that, um, I think it was um, Dr. Weaver who said that womanism um, kind of fights against uh, some of that. 
in terms of our um, just always having to explain ourselves. So you're asking how to how, how can womanism speak to this um, uh, this disposition of some of us to uh, feel we always have to explain ourselves? Yes. Okay. So I'd like to um, <laughs> um, before I uh, was uh, I had my present position at Columbia. Um, I was a, a professor of New Testament at, at Fuller Seminary. And, um, and there was a woman leader there. So for those of you who don't know, Fuller's a very evangelical seminary. And, um, and this particular seminary sort of made their name back in the, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago by being one of the first evangelical seminaries to affirm women's gifts and leadership. Yet, um, this one particular uh, woman leader that I knew that there were actually there were there was more than one now that I think about it. They um, had a habit of whenever we were in meetings, they would take out their bag of knitting and knit. Um, now I know that there are a lot of people who um, are fidgeters. I'm a fidgeter. <laughs> I'm, I'm always trying to do something with my hands. And so I understand that there are some people who like to, um, uh, you know, fidget with things. And so there's nothing on one level, there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. But I have to say, I found that practice troubling because it, um, I thought what it was, and maybe it, this was my interpretation, and this may not even be what was happening with them, but in my interpretation, it was an attempt to feminize themselves as leaders. They wanted to be more likable, and they wanted to present, what I interpreted is that they were trying to present themselves as likable by doing something that is very much associated with women's work, with the women's sphere. And I thought that that practice did more to set women's leadership back than about anything else I had seen in a long time. So I am actually um, wanting to uh, get beyond the question of likability. And I, and I sense that's what uh, Reverend Tribble is trying to say, is that uh, being consumed with being likable can inhibit us in being effective in our leadership capacities. And I wanna affirm that, I agree, mm -hmm. that, that being preoccupied with being likable, with doing women's things, is going to interrupt our potential effectiveness as leaders. It, you know, stereotypes are funny things. And, um, and I've spent a lot of time studying this, the stereotypes to which Black people and women, um, and all other, other people of color, men and women from the Latinx community, men and women from the Asian American community, all of us, we are. And it's really interesting, in my work, it seems to me that the stereotype, they're not, they're not even very creative stereotypes. Mm -hmm, <laughs> they, mm -hmm, they play mm -hmm. the same games on other women of color that they play on us. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I found very interesting in the study of leadership was that um, women are punished for ha for having what for having leadership characteristics that are deemed to be masculine. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. But because black women are often masculinized, we are actually punished less. Isn't that funny? 
because people already assume that we're already masculine to the to begin with. It's it's mm. a it's a really interesting thing. So um, so I'm wanting to trouble these notions of what gendered space, what gendered uh, kinds of characteristics belong to men leaders as opposed to those that belong to women leaders. And I want to talk about um, holistic characteristics that should be associated with all kinds of leaders, compassion, um, wisdom, um, effectiveness, efficiency, right? All of these kinds of attention to detail, mm -hmm. um, capacity to think in the big picture as well. Mm -hmm. Let's just get past this feminine, this, this feminine notion of lackability mm -hmm. as something that women leaders need to uh, engage. Thank you for the question. Yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, you know, I think we do though. I see too many sermons from sometimes from men and women and Bible studies um, forcing women into gendered roles, right? Uh, uh, what do you do? Uh, what do you do if you want to find a husband, right? All that kind of stuff. You see it on Facebook, you hear it in the church. Um, uh, and so for even as we may be uh, masculinized by outsiders, we have this tendency, therefore, I think, inside to want to over-feminize, right? To, to always, always telling each other what a woman does and what a good wife does and why you don't have a wife. And if you get a PhD or if you, or if you become a minister, you're not going to have a husband, right? Because no man doesn't want that's that is that is some of the same stuff. All that stuff goes together, right? Uh, any other comments up here uh, on this? Uh, do we have any comments from the audience? If you just want to comment and uh, or, or a question. You know, this chat goes kind of fast, so you may have to come back a second time if you have a question and, and put your name uh, up, up here. I think Christian Education had a question. Hey, everybody. Um, so my question was, um, male leadership in the church has taken a major hit with regards to death as a result of COVID-19. You've seen this, um, particularly, of course, um, even in the Kojic church, it's been extremely sad. Um, on the other side of this pandemic awaits many grieving women, um, those without husbands or sons and spiritual leaders, and they'll be needing a lot of support and spiritual direction. Is it, so we know it's like, it's not a secret that the church is not going to emerge from this the same um, at all. So my question was, what opportunities does womanist theology have in shaping the emergence of this new church um, post-pandemic? Uh, thank you uh, so much, um, Discipleship Institute. Uh, I, I think that Eva, uh, Reverend Eva, kind of brought this up initially in terms of, and what we're doing now, what we see, you know, I made a statement half joking last week that I never seen so many churches on one block, and many of them, the Facebook block. But but there are, and many of them are women. Women find, you know, taking this time to. Um, uh, to use their voices, find their voices, having prayer meetings, ha having Bible studies and all kinds of things, right? Uh, and so uh, I think womanism in, in, encourages um, 
uh, women to use their voices to assume their agency, to take their agency, right? Uh, uh, and, and to act, right? To act and to support each other. You know, I've, I've heard before this, I, I, I remember hearing women, other women pastors criticize a woman who stepped out just because just because it wasn't easy and just because she had to shut down her church, right? Well, did you, my question is, did you support her? And of course they hadn't, right? So, so we need to also be supportive of one another uh, uh, in order for women uh, to succeed. We have to support women and we have to be the type of women uh, who, will not replicate the oppression that we know in the church and, and have known in the church. Yeah. Yes. Dr. Smith. I thought Reverend Eagle was trying to speak at this. Oh. Point. Dr. Smith. Yeah, she was here first. I'm sorry. I'm sure no, 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 go ahead. Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure she wasn't. Were you trying to speak, Dr. Eagle? Her, her face came up. Well, I could just go ahead and um, interject and then as you began operating and in speaking using your truth speaking your truth speaking to black women during this time don't allow anybody to put you in the background don't let them make you hold the camera don't let them make you do all the work um it's very easy um for us to get handed things to go do rather than to kind of be in the front i know a lot of times we train to be in the background but this is not a time as we emerge out of this to step in the background and to be the one editing the video and holding the camera Right. That's, that's really what I want to say. Um, I wanted to add to everything that's been said about um, women and leadership in this time. I think it's, it's going to also be critical mm -hmm. not to fall into the trap of letting our leadership be liminal. Mm -hmm. There is a way mm -hmm. in which black women's leadership can be liminalized, if I can make up a word, right? We have liminal mm -hmm. leadership mm -hmm. because, oh, they can get this done in a crisis, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to get us through this. But then on the other side of through, yes. they want to embrace <laughs> us again. So we have to be careful about lim being put in positions where the expectation is we have liminal leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, pinch hit. And now that everything, now that we're back together, oh, we'll take our place. We can't have, life is not going to be the same. And, and so yeah. I, think we, I think we need to be mindful of the ways in which that can happen. Yeah, and we need to, and those of us who know and have experience, we need to teach each other. We need to teach our sisters. Instead of criticizing, teach each other, help each other out. And so many times, you know, this is in my experience as a professor where where someone asked for help and I and I have helped and they said, well, I asked uh, 10 other women and nobody responded. In my own experience, I have reached out to other black women. I'm like, at least say go to hell or something. Don't say a word, right? So we need to be helpful instead of being critical and tearing down each other. Bring the experience we have to bear to help our sisters succeed. Uh, any other responses to that? Okay, another, any other comments from you all or questions? We have time for a couple more before we close out with our womanist prayer. Any other comments or questions? Anyone want to, uh, uh Cody? Is that Cody? 
Cody. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, it's Cody. So um, as I build my own ministry, um, and I'm focusing on trauma, and for the past few months, I've been centering the trauma of strong Black women, which is um, extremely diverse and multi-layered. But what I have trouble in doing is creating a liturgy that helps them to see that they do have agency and also welcomes them space to lament. Um, and I, I'm having a hard time. Perhaps I'm just simply overthinking it, but I'm trying to develop a solid framework to make consistent liturgy that will bring them back into dialogue to help them know that they can access agency and they can also lament um, as a self-healing practice towards their trauma. Dr. Weaver, liturgy, and, and Pastor Eva. <laughs> um, um, Cody, thank you for your question. Uh, the bones, if you will, some good structures for liturgy. People need a place to speak, people need a place to listen, and people need a place for their words. Um, and so the liturgy, it, sometimes the liturgy is as particular or specific to the type of trauma, to the audience, et cetera. So those three things, place to speak, place to listen, and a place for their language to land. Additionally, I would, I would wanna add, good liturgy is embodied liturgy. Transformative liturgy is something that brings the whole person into it. And so if there is something for them to do, some representative or symbolic act, in moving through grief and letting something go and taking something on, when those things are tangible and symbolized and when they can be embodied, that produces very strong liturgy because one of the things that liturgy does is it imprints on us and it imprints on our soul and we carry what we've learned and what we've experienced in liturgical settings beyond the liturgical event itself. So those three things are good bones and scaffolds to begin. I hope that's helpful. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, I saw another question that is gone. So uh, why don't we, uh, 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 Dr. Weaver and I constructed here a womanist prayer, and we are going to close with this womanist prayer that we constructed uh, just for this, uh, to end this discussion. We thank you so much, all of you, uh, who came out to, to listen and to chat. And uh, I believe that uh, persons who were able to see the chat were as much blessed by the conversation in the chat as the conversation here on the panel. Okay, um, let, us, let us pray. Dear Mother Goddess Divine, spirit that moves and travels with each of us, where one or more gather in your presence in zoom meetings you are here thank you for making black women in your image the widows the single mothers the mothers living in poverty the mothers sick and or dying in famines and pandemics widows for whom the ravens do not fly in for whom pre-existing conditions abound, but they are, we are your children. Like the widow, all your children deserve to live, to have all they need to live, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. to have all they need to thrive. So in your name, we claim this right to live and to thrive. And we claim the right to talk back to prophets, to talk back to oppressive depictions of God, to talk back to narrators who claim God sent the famine, sent the drought, this pandemic, to talk back to texts that privilege men over women and one ethnicity over another, and that assert, texts that assert that God caused nature to turn against me, a black woman and my people that my sin is greater because of my gender or my race. Mm. Thank you that we can talk back to narrators, even in sacred texts, who would sacrifice my flesh and the fruit of my womb at the altar of patriarchy, sexism, racism, white supremacy, and religion. We reject homogenizing, dehumanizing, marginalizing stereotypes of widows, of people of color, of black women, of black people, of black of people of color. In the midst of our trouble, we express our hope, our faith in you, O oh goddess divine. And we praise you, O oh God, for the witness of a widow who pushes back against perceived threats to her existence and that of her household. We give her voice tonight. And we give you thanks, O oh God, for you see the weariness of widows and you provide for them in seasons of drought. We see her and we feel her pain. God grant us the boldness of this widow to push back against every threat to our existence, our families, and our communities. We are grateful and we love her womanist courage. God, help us to discern when the word is from you versus when it falls from the lips of a false prophet who preys on widows and other vulnerable people for profits. We reject false prophets who prey on us. God, we lift up single black women raising their children and supporting their household on sticks and handfuls of resources and strength. We ask you to increase their strength, restore their health, and multiply their resources in abundance. We are going north and we are taking a whole bunch of folks with us. God, touch the eyes of the community members in which marginalized, poor, underprivileged, under-resourced, oppressed Black women live. Help us to see her as part of us and help us to see her as part of you. Give us hearts of care, compassion, and courage to extend ourselves to her and her household so that all may thrive and all may flourish. God, give us courage to take risks for freedom and for justice from a place of self-love and neighbor love and to talk back to injustice wherever it is found. Amen. 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 And amen. Thank you so much, everyone. God be with you. And um, uh, 
continue to be encouraged. Good night. Did you guys night. stay? Did you guys stay for me? Good night. Yes, good night. Blessings on this Easter weekend. Yes.